This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to show 32 of Jordan Space and our first brand new show for 2024. I'm your host, Steve Phillip, and as always, I'm joined by Danny and Paul. And I know it's midway through the month of January, but look, a very happy new year to you both. Happy new year. Happy new year. Yeah, good. Here, here, we, here we go. And look, following a very busy end to 2023, including more than 100 people joining us for our Hope for Life conference in Harrogate, I think we needed the Christmas break to prepare us for our next big initiative, which maybe you can chat through and tell us all about, Paul. Sure, yeah. I mean, the Hope for Life conference is, was brilliant, fantastic again, and that's bringing together people with lived experience and, and just people telling amazing stories of overcoming tragedy. The Zero Suicide Transformation Programme is kind of like you, you and me going back to our day job here, Steve, of trying to get the suicide numbers down. So we've done our research, we've done our report, we've published our report, Moving Towards Zero Suicide Society. We've mapped out the practical actions that need to be taken, the vision that we're trying to get to and how we get there. And we now have our Zero Suicide Society Transformation Programme. And we are basically rolling that out. And we're already started rolling it out by doing presentations and talks and meetings with all sorts of people and suicide prevention leads and Lots of people who are interested in this, and we've got loads of those kind of meetings lined up for the first half this year. We want to really take it out on the road, literally, for a, a big public tour, and that's going to be happening in June this year. Now, people are possibly going to draw comparisons if there's a, a tour we're rolling out with last year's Baton of Hope tour, which the Jordan Legacy was, of course, one of the co-founders of. How will this initiative differ? Well, again, it's interesting, isn't it? And, uh, you know, I remember meeting Mike McCarthy for the first time and Mike was very angry and, and wanting to march on Downing Street and demand change. And, and because we were saying, what kind of change? <laughs> if you get to Downing Street, what change are you going to ask for? And that's why we've needed to do our research and really be absolutely clear about the changes that we need. And we've translated that into our petition and so on. When we, when you, me and Mike and, and Ian McClure met up to developed the concept for the back and forth. It was about bringing people with lived experience together, uh, moving away from just marching on Downing Street, you know, bringing people together. It was also about awareness raising and education, and it was about action. And I think the back and forth did a great job of pulling people together. It was definitely the biggest gathering of people with lived experience the UK has ever seen. I think what we've done is through our research, we know what the key messages are. We know what the key actions are. We want to be action focused. We want to get impacts. So what we're going to do is have uh, a big launch event, which will look at all the different pieces in the puzzle, the health system, the education system, what needs to change in workplaces, the tech for good. All of that is going to be showcased with relevant speakers talking about practical things that are being done and can be done. And then we're going to take that on the road from the Humber 
to the Mersey. And all along the way, we're going to join the dots. We're going to bring people together who are doing things. We are going to connect organizations that are practically doing things in suicide prevention. And we're going to keep talking practical action. And then when we get to uh, the Mersey, uh, we're going to arrive there in time for the uh, Global Zero Suicide in Healthcare Summit, which will bring together people around the world who are trying to change uh, towards zero suicide in healthcare specifically. So uh, in essence, that is the big thing for the healthcare piece of the puzzle. Uh, we're trying to make sure that all the other pieces of the puzzle are considered as well. Excellent. Good. I'm glad there's a child that had plenty of practice with uh, jigsaws and puzzles then, because uh, <laughs> it sounds like uh, we, we've definitely got our work cut out this year, which is exciting. And Danny, look, Paul has very kindly nominated me to participate in a cycle fundraiser as part of the Join the Dots tour across the Pennines um, in various stages. I noticed Paul didn't suggest getting his own bike out, but another conversation. But do you think there's an appetite, Danny, particularly amongst the general public, to support such a fundraiser for suicide prevention? Yeah, I mean, I think that suicide prevention is a cause close to a lot of people's hearts. So many people have been affected by suicide in one way or another, and that might be being linked to their own struggles or to someone they know. And I think it's these people especially who want to offer their support by making donations to help to ensure that work in suicide prevention can continue. Uh, there have been some hugely successful campaigns, such as the the three dads and the three mums walking. Uh, more recently, Emma Webb, who's walked more than 160 miles pulling a horse statue on wheels called Miles, uh, and that was in memory of her daughter Brody. And I think these are all really good examples of, of if you have a cause or a story that captures the public's imagination, or if the fundraising challenge has a unique approach, like Miles the Horse, I think this can generate a lot of conversations and attract a lot of support. So I think the cycle fundraiser that you mentioned sounds brilliant, but I do think it's important that it's not just a cycle event. I think it needs to be something unique, something that stands out, something that really gets people recognising and talking about suicide awareness and prevention. Um, so yeah, I know the three of us have been getting some ideas together and it's um, a really exciting event 2024 to look forward to. Yeah, thanks, Danny. And 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 Paul, Danny mentions about it being unique and different and sticking with that theme for a moment of maybe getting more and more creative with fundraising challenges. Do you think there's a risk of pushing these things too far? I, I think there is. I mean, there's some amazing things people are doing. And, you know, we see these like you know, pulling the horse from Chepstow to London is an extraordinary thing. And it's, it rightly gets coverage on BBC Breakfast. And they want to do something, they want to campaign, they want to fundraise. And we say, well, what are you going to do? And they say, oh, well, I'm going to run up a mountain. I'm going to run six marathons through the Sahara Desert. It's really important that we campaign and advocate and get the actions out there and do the education, etc. But self-care is really important. And also self-care leadership is really important. So we don't want to see people flogging themselves to try and help people because that's not setting the right example and we've got to practice what we preach in that respect you know not that we're preaching but you know we've got to show an example and I think that's what we want to do in our tour do something unique do all of the education and advocacy and campaigning and joining the dots and all of that do a few physical challenges which are uh, appropriate and which helps people to join in and which can be a bit of fun as well but make sure that we demonstrate to people that looking after yourself is such an important part of this. 
Look, many thanks both. We're going to take a short break now and play another track chosen by our guest this week, Mark Simmons. Mark has a remarkable story to share about his experience of workplace stress, which led to him having a complete mental breakdown and making an attempt to end his own life. If that wasn't enough, his teenage daughter then developed severe anorexia, which the family had to endure for more than six years. We'll be chatting with Mark very shortly, and we'll be right back after we listen to Valerie by Amy Winehouse. This, this is, is Yawa Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. Our first guest for 2024 is Mark Simmons. Mark is author of two books, which I've read and would highly recommend. The first is Breakdown and Repair, A Father's Tale of Stress and Success. And the follow-up to this, Beat Stress at Work. Mark, welcome to the show. It's uh, great to have you join us. Thank you very much, Steve. Looking forward to it. Now, in your books, you explain about your experiences of mental ill health throughout your working life, which began actually in your early 20s when working as a management trainee for Unilever. What were the first signs for you that something wasn't quite right? Um, well, look, I would have been probably in my early, early 20s. And it, it got to a point where... I would go into work and I'd have a to-do list and each day the to-do list would be harder and harder to complete. And I got to a point where I sort of started to actually not be able to function at all. What I'd do is I'd, this is slightly sort of slightly weird, but I'd go downstairs into the basement in the, the Unilever buildings and I would, I would start wandering around the frozen freezer cabinets full of sort of peas and burgers trying to understand exactly what was happening because I was just beginning not to function quite so much. And, and to be fair, I wasn't under a great deal of pressure. I was a graduate trainee and I had a, I had, you know, a clear sort of jobs to be done, but I was finding it more and more difficult to, to get those things actually done. So the, the symptoms were sort of ones of sort of a slight confusion, a little bit of panic, but then as it continues, it's a, you know, it's a bit like a sort of a snowball effect where you become more and more sort of panicky, more and more under pressure. And kind of it got to the point where, well, what do, I, what do I now do? And I know you've talked a little bit about maybe how some genetics were maybe at play here. I've heard you talk about the fact that part of the reason for your issues with anxiety and depression was maybe brought on by two close friends, in inverted commas, which you refer to as worry and winner. Can, yeah. can you explain to the listeners about these two? Yes, yeah, for sure. So I kind of tried to, when I wrote the books, I backtracked and started to think, okay, so how did all this kind of happen? And uh, sort of, um, I mean, what, one thing to say, I think it's quite important is that there's a bit of uh, nature involved here. Both my mother and my, my father were anxiety sufferers. So I always think there's a bit in the genes there, number one. Um, but number two, as I grew up, um, I, I, I kind of had this fairly ambitious streak. You know, I, I liked doing well at school. I liked doing well at sport. Um, I liked winning. I mean, it's not unusual. And I kind of refer to that as my as my my winner gene. You know, that, that desire just to, to do really well and to do your best. And that's great on the one hand. But on the other hand, I had, unfortunately, I had my worry gene. And that was the gene which is like the anxious gene. It was saying, okay, well, you know, before exams, before major rugby matches cricket match I always was feeling quite anxious and so when you started doing things that required your ambition you're often hampered by by your anxiety so winner and worry I mean you won't find either of those two by the way in any medical dictionary they're not they're not real genes but they were quite a nice way of explaining that battle that was in my head if that makes any sense 
did you tell anyone at work about how you were feeling at that time did you share with anybody yeah it was a great question Danny because remember this is back in the day here and before this was kind of out there I mean people weren't talking about mental health and I had a boss at the time and he was a very very efficient boss very nice man very good man but eventually after about after about a week I just had nowhere to go because I had to tell someone and I told my boss and 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 he was very good because he said immediately right take time off go away for two weeks and he also said to me look I won't I won't tell anyone about this you know I'm not going to sort of because it was at the time it would have been what what do you say to people and and I think for me I felt that if he told anybody it would be the death knell of my career so I was lucky I found a boss who was sympathetic and I think just did the right thing go away two weeks off and that was that sense of relief and again what's interesting was that I went to see a doctor and and he put it down to well you've had a good old-fashioned panic attack here's some medication take a couple of weeks off good luck sort of thing I mean he wasn't quite so cavalier but you know it was that sort of attitude to sort of well and and later in life when I had my sort of what I call my my big blip this is my little blip by the way my big blip was that when I got some proper diagnosis then then I was told that what you're suffering from is something called agitated depression which is kind of what happens is to when you are perpetually being under the cosh day after day after day after day and eventually your brain just can't take it anymore and it becomes more agitated it's very interesting mark and i can relate to a lot of what you're saying and when i first started coaching I had lots and lots of clients talking about their to-do lists and listing their priorities and then ended up prioritizing their lists i'm interested in the genetic aspect of it and then it really kind of coming to the surface when you were working at Unilever what about when you were a student I mean did you ex were you experiencing something new then that you hadn't experienced when you were doing things like exams well no it's a, another great question because when it happened at Unilever okay it was so confusing and frightening at the time but when I came to write the the first book and I went back in time I thought to myself think back now when was the first times that this manifested itself? I did quite a few talks at school, sixth form colleges. And actually why it's so appropriate is that when I talk to the sixth formers, I look at them in the eyes and say that the reason why you need to be here now, listen to this, is that I think I was your age, about 17 or 18, when it became clear that, you know, I suffered from anxiety. And that, that's why I do think, and, you know, all the fantastic work you're doing, is the earlier it begins, the better, because I do think people, possibly even earlier than 16, 17, are becoming more aware of their own personal situation vis-a-vis -vis stress, anxiety and mental illness. Mark, we don't want to give too much away so that people do go out and buy your books, of course, but I'd like to fast forward in your career to a point where you decided to leave Unilever, an opportunity arose where you went into business and partnership with uh, two others. But I believe this is where, in your own words, you say, Kind of your big blip really occurred yeah and I, I, i'll quickly if i can divert if you don't mind steve just before that because what happened after the unilever was that you know it's a fantastic great company but it just wasn't for me so there was this mismatch between you know the demands of the company and my personality and then we were rubbing up against the wrong way so for the next i'd say probably sort of eight or nine years i found the golden land i, I found an occupation in management training where I was completely at ease in what I was doing here. So I think one of the big lessons I found is if you find yourself in the wrong environment, 
no matter what you do, no matter how much you exercise, no matter how much you sleep, no matter how well you socialize, you will eventually start to kind of rub up against, rub up against sort of stress and, and worry. So for, for about eight or nine years, I was in this great place. And it was only when I then decided to go into business with two other really talented colleagues into the business world again, that I suddenly found myself in a sort of a position where I was not fit for purpose, kind of my personality, my character were at odds with the demands of the job again. So I couldn't ha I couldn't hadn't learnt my lesson. I kind of slipped back into doing something that was going to take me down a slippery path. This mismatch and the pressures once again saw you, as you've described, having this big blip. And I think it'd be really interesting for the listeners to kind of understand how that manifests yes. itself, really. No, without doubt. So imagine you're now in business with two really talented, driven people, very good at what they do. And you're not quite in the same kind of ballpark, really. You haven't quite got the same tools. But you've reached your dream. I've now got my own company. So then what happens is that, you know, you're in it and you're working and we divide and conquer the roles. And again, um, imagine the Unilever situation of about 15 years previously. There's the same kind of symptoms start to arise. So gradually over time, you're doing job roles that are not best suited to you. I was looking after finance and legal matters. And then kind of, you know, it was the same sort of thing is that every day the to-do list became harder and harder to complete. But I, I kind of, had, I had more to lose right now. I and mean, this is more, this is like my livelihood. We had a mortgage now. We had sort of three kids, a mortgage, obligations. This was my dream here. So did I tell my two partners that I was in trouble? No, I didn't. You know, did I kind of battle on head in the sand? Yes, I did. Did I suffer? Did I not sleep? Yes, 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 yes. So it's that kind of picture. What what happens is that I kind of phrase it like the good stress that you feel when you know you're you're about to say quite exciting soon got replaced by the bad stress. And it's a little bit like like raindrops. You know when you, the rain kind of falls from the sky and it's kind of like it, it's annoying, but does it really make much difference? And then pretty soon you find out that you're soaked. <laughs> then the rain becomes really wet rain and you are soaked through. And I think that's kind of how stress migrates from good stress to bad stress. Because without you knowing it, you're in trouble. And without you knowing it, your brain is being battered every single day and you're in a lot of trouble. You, you got to this stage where you literally would sit there at your laptop and and just couldn't do anything no, and, which and, and a lot that, of people would struggle to to kind of and comprehend and, that, and that's kind of like saying you've you've gone from the good stress to the bad stress and the bad stress is the daily kind of trudge through through your today this is the ugly stress now so you're there in front of your computer and you're looking at it and you simply cannot operate i can i can converse i can talk to my wife but you simply cannot operate so effectively for me i was having the breakdown that was the point of breakdown and ironically, in, in, in medical terms, uh, uh, the, the term breakdown doesn't exist, but actually a breakdown is, is good for you. Now, let me explain why. Um, because when you break down, what your brain is saying is that I, I'm not going to put you through any more pain right now. I'm going to take things out of your hands and I'm going to stop you working because the longer you work, the more damage you'll cause. It's a bit like when you put your hand in, into, a, into a pan of boiling water and the brain immediately says, take it away. So you take it away. So what's happening here is the brain saying, okay, stop. I will let you recommence when I think you're out of danger. Are there, you mentioned about good and bad stress. 
and, and ugly stress as well. I, I think good and bad breakdowns, maybe, and ugly breakdowns. I'm, I'm okay, slightly glib thing to say, but I'm, I'm thinking probably how it all ends, really, maybe. So I think a good breakdown is when it's probably a bit of a wake-up call, you know, like a wake-up call, right, this is your last chance, Mark, last chance now, good, you've had a breakdown, stop it, you know, or maybe maybe a good breakdown is basically a, a prolonged panic attack. Maybe a bad breakdown is where you're beyond the pale and actually you've done so much damage to your brain that I tell you, we'll turn off the engine, but, you know, this is for the scrap heap. And I think for, for me, because I put my brain through so much sort of strain uh, in the last few months, I think I had a bad breakdown because it was so difficult from that point to recover. I then entered this deep, dark depression from which I spent three or four months desperately trying to try to get out of but but just simply just simply couldn't i remember going to a talk many many years ago by a, a, a psychologist called susan firth who we talked about stress and she talked about the fid uh, the frequency intensity and duration of stress so again like you say there's good stress uh there's healthy stress and then there's, there's unhealthy stress so yeah. it depends on the frequency intensity and duration yeah. it, sounds, it sounds to me as if you have to add something to the fid you have to add an n i think to the fid which is the nature <laughs> of that stress and i think that's a that's, a, that's not, not a great point there because i i think that actually if you if you're doing something you love doing and you're passionate about it and you've got purpose in it i reckon you can push push yourself quite hard but if you're doing jobs that you don't enjoy and you're not qualified to do and you're under repetitive stress i think that nature is actually quite bad for you here if you're doing something which has got meaning you can be under quite a lot of pressure and quite a lot of stress and get through it but if you're doing something which means nothing to you and has no purpose, and actually, then it's really hard to be under the cosh all the time. How, how supportive were your business partners during this time? Yeah, I mean, imagine, because it was like, this was the last thing they needed, but they were great. They honestly, they got it completely. I mean, got it completely. What I'm saying is they, they understood I was in difficulty. You know, the two weeks off, fine, two weeks off, and then the indefinite leave was, again, what they agreed. But imagine how much pressure they were then under, both operationally and financially. Did that add to your stress, yes, kind of knowing yes. they were under oh, stress? Really, really. I mean, that was a really big thing, because as the months progressed, you, you know, because I'm basically, I think it's fair to say, I'm a decent sort of guy. And I didn't want to think I'm there doing nothing and taking the money, and those two people are out there busting a gut. So... That just simply added to the, the 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 bombardment on my brain at the same time there. But they they were very good during my period of illness. Now finding the right treatment for your anxiety and depression was quite a challenging process, and of course you go into detail about this yeah. in your book Breakdown and Repair. Eventually, though, you did make a good recovery. You were able to go back to work, albeit in a different yeah. context and and role. However, kind of just as you were getting better, your attention immediately turned to Emily. Your teenage daughter very much forms part two of that that book but in the time we have can you tell us kind of just what happened at that time i use the words carefully but one sort of benefit or one silver lining let's say of having been through the course yourself and come through at the other end is that you just get things much more clearly so you understand you understand mental illness you know what it's like to be mentally unwell and you know how long it takes to get better and you and you just you have a much greater empathy for people that are suffering and so when emily contracted or developed anorexia nervosa when she was 16 
I mean, this lasted about six years in total and, and Emily almost died and she, you know, she had a dreadful six year experience. But because I'd been through the kosh, I kind of understood kind of how she felt. And, and I was able to try to almost to, there's a kind of phrase of a phrase that we, we used about, I was able to talk the language of irrational, the language of irrational. It's like when someone's mentally unwell, what they don't really need are lots of giving them very clear, clever solutions. That's the language of rational. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling too well today. Okay, do this, 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 and you'll be fine. The language of irrational is almost ironically not a language because you're doing more listening than you are talking. It's like, it's more empathetic and it's more, okay, tell me more, you know, so you're, you're not opening your mouth very much. So, so that's one thing my illness taught me was the language of irrational. And then throughout the time of her illness, you know, I was able to try to almost to help her in, in that respect. And it would be remiss of me not to mention, of course, the fact that there are other family members here. You have two two sons, but of course, your wife, Mel, played a, an incredible yes. role, yeah. kind of looking after you all, it sounds like. <laughs> well, I think, as I said, I joke about it in my book, and we we did try to, by the way, we, we have tried to use humour as our way through things. So forgive me if I'm ever, ever sounding slightly irreverent, but we did always talk about this in, in a light-hearted way to help us get through things but mel didn't didn't probably sign up for me or my daughter when she uttered those words yes i do when i proposed her marriage because <laughs> mel never actually experienced any mental ill health herself or within her family so for her it was all kind of an alien and i think mel would be the first to admit that she has always been very good at speaking the language of rational and she had to learn the language of irrational particularly with emily where you know she wanted to come to solutions that emily you're not eating eat you'll get better to a much more kind of empathetic kind of way of talking to emily so so that so she was a superstar given the fact that this wasn't her natural suit i would say probably mark thank you for sharing this part of your story with us which i'm sure your listeners will be keen to learn more about we're going to make sure that we include links to both okay. the books uh, on the show notes on our website now we've been playing a few tracks today chosen by you we're going to play another one now and we're going to play April Come She Will by Simon and Garfunkel. Why is this song? Well, I said it's it's going back to something that Paul mentioned when you're going back to your youth and you you know you're, as a student. And I just remember there were just two bands I just loved to bits, and they were quite different. So one of which was sort of Simon and Garfunkel because they were nice soft melodic songs, sort of. And then there was Genesis, kind of a bit harder sort of thing. So. This is a song which was not a famous Simon and Garfunkel song, not as famous as some of the others, but it's one I always quite liked. And also, to be fair, April Come She Will is exactly how I'm feeling right now today with today's weather. And so I'm thinking to myself, please, please roll on April, because I think for me, April is always the birth of the new year. So when the, when the clocks go forward at the end of March, I always think April's when the year begins. So let's play April Come She Will by Simon and Garfunkel, and we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Yawa Radio, and we love to bring you details of the inspirational book of the week. This week's book of the week is by Dr. Joe Dispenser, Becoming Supernatural, How Common People Are Doing the Uncommon. What would it mean to be supernatural? What if you could train your brain to tune into frequencies beyond our material world? Change your brain circuitry and chemistry to access transcendent levels of awareness and transform your very biology to enable profound healing. 
This is one of the abilities Dr. Jody Spencer offers in this revolutionary book, a set of tools that allow ordinary people to reach extraordinary states of being. So, this week's inspirational book of the week is Becoming Supernatural, How Common People Are Doing the Uncommon by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Welcome back. We're talking with Mark Simmons, author of the books Breakdown and Repair, A Father's Tale of Stress and Success, and the follow-up to this, Beat Stress at Work. Mark, workplace stress is something many of us are familiar with, um, and in our work at the Jordan Legacy, we're often invited to deliver talks and workshops on this topic as part of the wider subject about employee well-being and suicide prevention. Your latest book, Beat Stress at Work, although it revisits some of the personal stories from the first book, this seems to be much more of a practical guide of how to cope with stress and poor mental health in the workplace. Who, who is this book aimed for, do you feel? Well, it's to your, it's to your point, Steve, is that when I had the first book published, is you know, it was a nice book, but it's fundamentally a tale. It was a narrative of two stories. So the, the publisher said, look, the self-help genre is quite a big genre. And obviously, stress in the workplace is a big topic. So how about revisiting the first book and almost repurposing it for the workplace? So and my, my job is a management trainer. So this is like, you know, like a gift from God, because I was thinking, well, God, I, I love training. And now I've got a chance to actually write a book where I can introduce all these little frameworks and checklists and, and diagrams to try to give people a sort of an, a sort of a, a clear view of how they can cope, better cope with stress in the workplace. So it therefore becomes a kind of a hybrid between a tale and also a self-help book, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And what are you hoping the reader is going to take away from, from this book? Well, I think, I mean, it goes back to an earlier point that I made that, you know, whenever, whenever I'm sort of asked by people, okay, so you've, you've got 15 seconds, what's your one big top tip for beating stress in the workplace? I tend to go to sort of, are you in the right job in the first place? So the beat stress at work as a book, is, is not about the more tactical things that you can do to, 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 to beat stress on a daily level so much. It's more about asking yourself the big questions. So going back to something that Paul mentioned again beforehand is that I, I have a couple of frameworks which get you to ask questions of, of, you know, if you are an 18, 19 year old and you're about to enter the world of work or the world of universities, you know, here's a checklist of questions to ask your nearest and dearest to get them to give you their point of view on which is the best. So it's, it's a pragmatic book, which is trying to help people almost to make sure that they are in a job which basically is right for them. Because I kind of see it a bit like a relationship, you know, with a partner. If basically, you know, with you, you're with the wrong partner and you've got different sets of values, that you, you may be okay for a time being, but after a while, basically it's not going to work there. So I think a big, big part of the book is, is making this, the strategic play of am I in the right place? I just wondered, did you find writing the book sort of a form of therapy for yourself as well, maybe? A really good question. Yeah, and both books, actually, particularly the first book, Danny, because that one was a book that literally went into the nuts and bolts of, of the illnesses and both mine and Emily's, actually. And I mean, I think writing the books is is a great form of therapy. And in fact, actually, my publisher has coined, I coined the phrase bibliotherapy, bibliotherapy, which is basically the therapy you get from both writing and reading books. 
so it's you know it's often quite a nice thing to do so so i i blog i blog weekly and for me just the act of blogging is a great way of trying to express kind of how i'm feeling very openly so when you write things down you're often having to be much much more accurate in terms of how you're thinking and feeling about things there so often by talking by writing i kind of had these kind of oh now i now i get it now i understand better how i'm feeling here so to answer your question without a shadow of doubt it was greatly cathartic particularly the first book actually it's great that you enjoyed doing the book it was almost like a you know a joy to turn your training your frameworks into that book and to translate the first book into the work setting and also that it's good therapy but what about in terms of stress and anxiety were there points during the writing process or during the publishing process where there were any peak points of stress or anxiety that's a, another question I haven't ever been asked before so you're quite good Paul asking questions I've never been asked before so thank you for that <laughs> but actually you know I tell you what again it builds on the point that I've, I've just made is that I enjoy writing you know if you're doing something you enjoy you don't mind writing at weekends or in the evenings because it's more of a hobby so it goes back to again like you know I know that you're all doing something amazingly purposeful and, and useful and therefore by doing that that it, it doesn't I don't know, for me, feel quite so stressful. So, you know, I'm writing a book and I know that the, the books that I write, they're not JK Rowling bestsellers, but I know they've helped some people. And so if you if you imagine a book is helping an individual person, you know, I don't find it stressful writing the books. And like, the more you write, there's another, there's another sort of, I think, another rule about the, the more you write, the better you become. That, that sort of, that 10,000 hours of practice. There's someone who's of course, quite famous about 10,000 hours of practice. So I yeah. find it much easier to write things now. I don't kind of have writer's block. And yes, yeah, so to answer your question, I think the, the, the straight answer is no, Paul, probably. A common theme that's coming through here is that if you basically, if you're doing a job you really enjoy, you know, you're less likely to, to experience the stress and anxiety or easy to cope with it or whatever. Uh, and it's about being in the right job. And Obviously, lots of people do get into the right job, but other, others don't. I mean, I've had clients that I've yes. coached and counselled over the years that have like taken on the family business, uh, yeah. and after thirty years, they've hated every single day of it. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, do you come across in in your work, uh, and as you're talking about your books and whatever audiences you, 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 I mean, do you get people who feel they're stuck in the wrong job? Yeah, always. I mean, again, just to be crystal clear, again, is that you know, mental health. And I use the word, uh, hopefully not irreverently, but it's a bit of a side hustle because I, I, I still work. I have a day job, which I love to bits here. So, but I do come across people because they know I've, I've published books that are in exactly the position you talk about, Paul. So, so you know, if I take sort of, if, I'm, I don't think she'd mind me saying so, but my son's girlfriend, lovely, worked in consultancy, you know, post-university for two or three years, hated it with a vengeance. But then in COVID times, so I said, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to revisit what I really want to do. And now she's trained to, to become a doctor in child psychology. But I think that it's always the thing where the first thing I'd say to people is say, look, I know it's hard. I know you might be in a job which you don't enjoy. It may be difficult to change. But until you do, it's going to be quite hard to, to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. But having said that, though, although being stress at work looks at getting into the right job strategically, the other thing which I do focus on quite a lot with my talks is, okay, so, but tactically, how do you get through every single day and survive every day? So if I could go back to when I had my big blip, I had this wonderful counsellor, coach, stroke coach, 
who introduced the concept of banisters. And what she said, look, Mark, life is a bit like a sort of a staircase. It's a bit like a staircase. And the staircase has got rickety, rickety, rickety stairs and there's banana skins and there's basically there's oil, there's sort of a, a child's toy. You're going to have those whatever you like. There's going to be Brexit, there's going to be COVID, there's going to be bad, bad job, bad boss. That's going to happen. But as long as your banisters are in place, then you've got something to hang on to when the going gets tough. And and the banisters, for example, are they, they sound a bit sort of Mickey Mouse and a bit more obvious, but the banners, my banners are sort of every day we walk the dog. Every day I have a, a early afternoon internal meeting at home. Now, internal meeting, also known as nap. <laughs> but I can't call it a nap because I mean, you can't tell your client you're having a nap. <laughs> but I have an internal meeting, only half an hour, but half an hour is, is I look forward to it. When the moment I wake up, half an hour nap, you know, I try to do something creative every day. Is I get into the garden, you know. Yeah. So I have my banisters in place. These these are more tactical things that help you get through the day to day. But I reckon that if you're not in the right kind of job, no matter how many banisters you have, eventually, eventually they won't do their job. So the sure. combination of strategically are you in the right job and tactically have you got your banisters in place? They're the two things I think that side by yeah. side help you. Yeah. One thing that, that now I absolutely love and adore. You know, I watched one of Michael Mosley's health programs, and he featured uh, Olympic rowers training. Yeah. They all have now a standard. They all have a half hour nap in the middle of the day. Great. <laughs> and then I used the same concept at a sixth form school, and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. But then, unfortunately, one of the students then told her teachers later on. As an excuse, why well, I can't I can't do that because I'm having an internal <laughs> meeting now. <laughs> Isn't that great? Brilliant. Oh, I think we're all going to take a nap this afternoon. A um, meeting, an internal meeting. Yeah, a meeting. Yes. Yeah, so um, now, Mark, I know time's very much against us. Now, there's been some fascinating lessons I've taken away from our conversation today. I don't know if there's a, a relatively short answer to this question, but from a company perspective, what do you believe needs to change as far as how companies look after the well-being of their employees is concerned, given everything you've talked about? Yeah, there's a lot to say here. But if there's just mm-hmm. one thing, one thing only, it would be this. It would probably be... Li- can all the senior managers in the company make it easier for people to talk about mental health? Now, and the best way to do that is for senior managers to, to be able to be open about their own mental health, first of all. Um, and even if it's like, I tell you what, guys, I'm struggling a bit this week. I'm not quite sure what's wrong, but you know, even if it's not admitting that I've got anxiety, or I'm suffering from stress, but a way of saying that, because what will then happen is that everybody will then be given license to open up about their own mental health there. So I think the one thing to say is get the senior managers to, to open up and then the floodgates will open up and it'll become a much easier conversation all around. I, I'd highly support that. And I know in some of the work we do, I remember delivering a workshop on the theme of having difficult conversations around suicide and talking about mental health and stress. And the senior managing partner was sat in with all the employees, junior employees, and in this workshop opened up about his own struggles and poor HR director told me they'd never had so many people knocking on the door of occupational health afterwards but you know we joke about that a little bit but it it had a huge impact on the employees and kind of gave them permission to to open up look Mark we always end our conversations by uh, asking our guests to share a a message of hope who would your message be for and what is that message you'd like to share 
Well, I think it's for all the people that that currently sort of experience mental ill health and are, are kind of a little bit worried about kind of, let's say, coming out of the mental health closet, if that makes sense. So the message would be that that if you do that, it'll be great for two reasons. First of all, if you if you are much more open and honest about your own mental health issues, you will become stronger as a result. You, you will become a better person and you'll be able to do great things yourself. If you don't come out, if you don't admit things, you won't do that there. So there's a direct correlation between what you can do achieve and your ability to be open and honest about your own mental health issues. And the number two thing is by doing that, you're going to help the world. I mean, that's got to be, you know, societally speaking, you'll help the world by doing that. What a wonderful message. I think for anyone wondering what difference can I make, particularly if I'm struggling myself, I think that's a wonderful message of hope to end on. Look, before we absolutely let you go, we're going to play a couple of more tracks today, but one of them we're going to choose now is a new one on, on me. Uh, this is a track called Bloodline by The Slow Show. Uh, tell us a little bit about why this track uh, was chosen. It's, it's a lovely song. It's a very soft song, and I'm, I'm into soft songs. And the video on YouTube little guilty secret you know is it's just taken in Brighton on the south coast where I was brought up and I had so many happy happy years there I watch it and I'm just happy when I watch the video to be honest Mark thanks so much for for joining us today it's been a real pleasure My to, pleasure to have the conversation I think a lot for people to take away I think and a great way to start the year for us with a new show on some real positive messages of hope so thanks very much and uh, let's listen to the slow show and bloodline this, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back, everybody. And Danny and Paul, I think a great start. Our first new show for 2024. I've certainly taken a lot away from what Mark has said and what I've read in his books. Paul, what were some of the key things that you took away from our conversation with Mark? It was, it was an interesting one to listen to. For me personally, you know, with my own history of anxiety, depression and breakdowns, listening to... Mark, just very calmly, matter-of-factly talking about really heavy stuff here in a way that's very accessible for the people. And I can imagine his workshops and so on, his training will be really valuable because of his lived experience. And of course, his lived experience helped him help his daughter. So that's really, really important. And I, I just love the fact that we ended up having the conversation ourselves. You know, that when Mark said that he talked about the concept of a good breakdown, I was genuinely thinking, really? A good breakdown. Hmm. Interesting idea. I've not really come across that before. And hence I asked the question, you know, is there such a thing as a good breakdown and a and a bad breakdown? So yeah, it was it was really nice. I can imagine if I spent more time with Mark, I'd have some really interesting conversations. And I haven't read his books, so I look forward to reading his books. Yeah, absolutely. And Danny, what were some of the things for you? Yeah, I think you raised some brilliant points about looking after our mental health and the importance of being open and honest about it and I also think he used some great analogies that you know I think will really help people visualize and recognize where they might be facing stresses in their lives and possible breakdowns and, and maybe how we can better balance our lives and live more positively so I think that his interview and his his books are hugely valuable for people in this respect you know particularly perhaps in terms of work-life balance I think the analogies, I absolutely agree with you. One of the ones I, I, I love that he talked about was the, the drops of rain and how kind of before you know it, you're suddenly soaked through. So I think painting pictures and stories that way is, is hugely valuable for people. Yeah, and I just think one, one of the things he said, which I think is really, really challenging, but 
in a good way. He talked about the sooner you have experiences with anxiety and maybe things like panic attacks, the, the better in terms of becoming stronger in terms of being able to cope with it and hence needing to teach things like this in school and so on. I, I think that initially that's a concept that's probably a little bit too challenging for some people, but it fits, it works, it makes sense. And it's all part of us wanting to have suicide prevention education in schools. I, I think you're right. I think it fits perfectly. And and yeah, in some ways, if, if you're going to experience this, better to have dealt with it early uh, on in, in life when you're maybe more able to to deal with it and, and recover as well. So really, really valid point. Well, look, thank you both. That's it for our first new show of Jordan Space for 2024. My thanks to Danny and Paul and, of course, to our guest this week, Mark Simmons. Uh, thank you also for joining us again this year. I hope you found today's discussion interesting and insightful. And if you felt inspired to support our work to help prevent suicides, you can make a donation on our website, thejordanlegacy.com, or you can get in touch by emailing us at hello at thejordanlegacy.com. You can also engage with us on social media by following the Jordan Legacy CIC's LinkedIn company page. We are on X, of course, formerly known as Twitter. Instagram as well, using the same username at Jordan Legacy UK. And of course, we're on Facebook at the Jordan Legacy. You can listen to recordings of previous shows on our website by choosing the menu Jordan Space at the top of our homepage. We will, of course, be adding this show to that particular page. For now, and from Danny, Paul and myself, we'd like to wish you a safe, healthy and above all, hopeful rest of your week. And we're going to leave you with one final track chosen by Mark, which is How Bizarre by OMC. With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone, and feel-good music. Yawa Radio is about well-being, happiness, and finding the beauty within. Enjoy. Be beautiful. Be happy. Be inspired. This is Yawa Radio. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. UK. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio Podcast. Copyright applies.